to our virtual EU Camp Europe. My name is Jos Boonstra. Today I'm replacing your host, Andreas Marazis and Rashid Gabdulakov. In our youth, we discuss Europe Central Asia developments. What is happening in Europe that Central Asians should know about? What events are unfolding in Central Asia that Europeans should understand? Together we discuss society trends, political developments and economic turns while assessing the past and looking ahead to the future. A Chat in the Europe is a podcast from the EU camp program at, of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and sign up to EU Camp News on our website. In today's episode, I welcome your regular host, Rashid Gabdulakov, as a guest. Rashid is an assistant professor at the University of Groningen. There he works at the Center for Media and Journalism Studies. He is also an associate researcher at EUCAN. He is joined by Boris Nurdinov, who is a pro project manager uh, at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting from Kyrgyzstan. Welcome, guys. Hey, great to be here. Hey, thank you. Uh, Rashid, to start with you, um, we are talking about some new research today. Uh, can you, in a nutshell, describe what we are talking about? Absolutely. Um, well, since the full-scale war that Russia launched against Ukraine on 24 February 2022, hand-in-hand hand with it came an information war. Again, it, it was ongoing for some decades now, but it became even more intense. So what our research focused on was the message that is delivered to audiences in Central, in Central Asia, but on the example of Kyrgyzstan. And, all, and we did that through a qualitative study, through content analysis of, of news items. And we also focused on the reception side of these news. So we've conducted focus groups across the country, across Kyrgyzstan, in three regions, in the south, in Osh, in the center, in Narin, and in the north, in the capital of Bishkek. So the main goal was to look at the, okay, what narratives reach audiences in Kyrgyzstan and how these narratives are perceived. The study is unique in the sense that uh, it is looking for both of these items, yeah, both elements, both the, the, the message sent and the message received. And also it applies uh, qualitative methods which allow, for, which allow for going after depth of meaning rather than uh, numbers and uh, quantities. I'll give you one example. For, for instance, when there is a misinformation item that reports that the president of Kyrgyzstan, Sadr Japarov, expresses his full endorsement of Russia's quote-unquote special military operation in Ukraine. Uh, for us, in, in qualitative approach, it doesn't matter whether this news item is shared one time, three times, five, 15 times. We don't count this. We look at the at the impact of this news, right? Because the damage has already been made. And knowing that these uh, media platforms have vast audiences, I mean, we're talking about millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, we know that they reach them. Uh, so we look after depth. In a nutshell, this is uh, what our research is about. Okay, thanks a lot, Rashid. Uh, Boris, can you uh, tell a little bit about the project? Because the research of, is, of course, encapsulated by a larger project. Okay, sure. Uh, so this project's main element, as said by Rashid, is the research itself. But 
Further of the research, we uh, aim to arm our audiences uh, or decision makers with the results of the research to uh, take some policies, to make some laws, uh, to counter the Russian propaganda in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, in doing so, we have two main outputs. Is first one is to work with decision makers, policymakers uh, on the level of uh, laws or policies. And the second is to work with the general population, with the audiences, to help them understand the scale and the effects of the Russian propaganda in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, we have uh, several elements of the project to which this call for the first one is the, of course, the uh, to produce uh, several products based on the research, the policy brief, policy report, policy uh, booklets for decision makers, and several media content on our Cover Asia platform. Uh, on the and the other element is the media course on propaganda. We've developed a uh, core online course uh, about uh, identifying propaganda uh, for our platform called Media School, uh, which is. A very effective uh, platform for local analysts and journalists uh, to improve their quality of the content. And the other element is the uh, to produce the handbooks for the local universities about uh, disinformation, fact-checking, and propaganda. So that's quite clear. So you really try with this project to have an impact uh, on policy and on people and also do a lot of training. So that sounds good. You also mentioned scope at one point, uh, the scope of uh, Russian media. Rashid, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this media that is active in Kyrgyzstan? Absolutely. I think it's also a good opportunity to uh, talk briefly about propaganda, the nature of Russian propaganda in Kyrgyzstan or propaganda in general. Uh, it's a communication strategy, right, that is designed to uh, influence the way people think, the way people perceive reality, particular events, but even the uh, you know, reality in broader terms, because the type of propaganda we are facing now coming out of Russia is deeply ingrained in the cultural code in the sense that it didn't arrive in the independent states. It just never left. Yeah, it just stayed in the, in the, in the post-Soviet space, yeah, to use this idiotic term. Um, well, and propaganda is expressed through a variety of uh, mediums. It's in the architecture, it's in the statues, it's in the symbols, it's in the names of city districts, in the names of the streets that, has, that still carry on the Soviet legacy named after the you know bolshevik uh, leaders or people who murdered central asians and we have streets named after them uh, so propaganda is deeply ingrained it's also delivered through these entertainment programs through um celebrations you know take new years for instance all the movies that we are watching the so-called golden collection of soviet films so it's really multifaceted and it impacts the culture code in the in terms of media products that deliver news russian propaganda in kyrgyzstan is massive it's also by by default uh free because the state pays for retranslation re-rebroadcasting re of the of some of the major russian news channels and can you imagine so taxpayers are paying money to watch propaganda news that are increasingly being blocked around the world 
What we observed also is that the volume of news items is continuously increasing across Russian uh, channels, outlets. Uh, and if you know movies are interrupted, entertainment programs are interrupted, and news is just bombarding people. Uh, even entertainment is becoming highly political because we have artists that uh, are critical of the state. Those, of course, left the country, they're in exile, and now their reputation is being damaged in the Russian media. But you also have the artists, these informal leaders who endorse the war, who endorse Putin, and they come with concerts to, to Central Asia. That's also propaganda. You turn on TV, they're singing there, they're normalizing war. They're building on sentiments of World War II. This has also been happening for two decades now. All these celebrations, all these sentiments. Yeah, Thank uh, our grandpas for victories. These slogans, these mantra-like narratives that we continuously repeat year after year. They, they aid the Kremlin strategy right now because they set up the familiar ground of war, of fighting the evil. Yeah, but I'm, I'm tapping more into the narratives now, but... To sum up my answer, Jos, uh, the scope of Russian media in Kyrgyzstan is massive and it's multifaceted, multi-semiotic, multi-model. So this is very different from Russian media in Western Europe, where Russia today arrived uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, ca can you explain uh, maybe a little bit the media landscape then in Kyrgyzstan? Uh, how do you compare Russian media to Kyrgyz or other? Media. Funny enough, you mentioned uh, RT, uh, well, they, they rebranded, right? So now they don't stand for Russia Today. That was done for, for the purpose of offering a broader outlook in perception. When they emerged, I was actually living in the United States, and you wouldn't believe it, but the the liberal uh, uh, the liberal members of society were embracing RT as a fresh, as a, as a breath of fresh air, because it, it was providing some alternatives. Yeah. Of course, in, there are no, no cultural codes, no sentimental attachments, no programs that people grew up with, unlike is the case with Russian media in, in a country like Kyrgyzstan. Uh, yeah, that, so that's in, in, in the US and Western Europe. Uh, but in Kyrgyzstan, there must also be a media landscape. There must be Kyrgyz media, yeah. uh, Western media. How, how does that relate to each other? Precisely. Of course, yeah, there are domestic uh, media channels. There are national broadcast corporations. Uh, well, there is a national broadcast tele tele television and radio corporation that again, it, it retranslates or rebroadcasts Russian media. There are some private channels, newspapers, uh, outlets that are basically tools in the hands of politicians and oligarchs to deliver particular messages. Um, and so the local media can be described as, as somewhat um, marginal and weak, but Kyrgyzstan is the, is the country that has also a very vivid, vibrant, strong civil society. And of course, there are independent outlets as well. Yeah, fantastic independent outlets, like I'm thinking Klopp, KG, for example. Those are unfortunately demonized by the government and by well, some conservative layers of the society that are accusing them of collaborating with the quote-unquote evil West, with delivering uh, propaganda, in fact. Uh, just recently, some of the politicians in Kyrgyzstan spoke about the uh, threat to national television coming from, from these kinds of independent uh, journalism in Kyrgyzstan. So sadly, this um, rich uh, practice of independent journalism, I'm mean, talking about relative terms, of course, in Central Asia, is now being threatened by, by the government. And um, 
society is also members of some of society are recruited to join uh, the forces and to put the independent journalists on pitchforks to figuratively describe this. Of course, uh, Western media also penetrate here and there. We are talking about Deutsche Welle, Russian service predominantly. Of course, there is Euronews, Russian service, uh, BBC, CNN, uh, Azatik, yeah, Radio Liberty. They have the local service. Um, but it's interesting with them because it's a it's a particular type of uh, viewer that will seek these out, right? So, and if even if you seek them out, I mean, maybe I can talk more about this in the when we address perceptions. There is no sentimental attachment to these outlets, akin to that uh, with the Russian media. When you grow up with some programs, when you have default trust and uh, in the media. Exactly. So if you look on your phone on, and go online on your computer, if you turn on the TV, uh, open a newspaper, and it's, if it's Russian, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Uh, what are you seeing? Well, if you turn on television, of course, the, predominantly the, the number one channel, the number one um, radar or for for the Kremlin the, the exudes its uh, narratives is channel one channel one has been around well it was the public Russian television again rebranded in 1995 and it's basically yeah the main channel that people uh, know it's it's very sentimental people have a cultural attachment to it there is a variety of other channels that we looked at there is Mir uh, this is an interesting one basically sponsored by the cis member states yeah the uh, commonwealth of independent states which is an interesting term even to use here SNG, because it basically is this dead entity the formation that politically doesn't mean much uh, in practice but in discourse it means a lot because it allows for Russia to have this invisible glue that unites all these former Soviet countries to frame them as former Soviet and to position Russia as this uh, mother state of all uh, uh, other republics. There is REN TV, uh, NTV, of course, um, Russia One, Russia Din, Russia 24, and they have this program called Vesti. Vesti is basically news, and it also penetrates through a variety of channels. So if in the you have newspapers, you have an online news agency called Sputnik that delivers news in Russian and in Kyrgyz. We, we looked at 10 different platforms, newspapers, online news agency, TV channels. They have a variety of repertoires. Yeah, some, they differ quite a bit. I mean, if you look at Rent TV, for instance, they more... They border conspiracy theories. They're more like conspirologists, everything like NATO birds recruited to spread COVID around the world. That's Ren TV style. When you look at Sputnik, especially the domestic uh, branch in Kyrgyzstan, Sputnik KG, the news are created more professionally. There is no like blatant propaganda, but you can still track it. And they deliver the news in Kyrgyz and they rely on local experts. But some of these news are also absurd in the sense that, yeah, I mean, a couple of items that come to mind right now that uh, Ukraine is creating biological weapons to use on Kyrgyzstan. I mean, we are talking that level of, of narrative. So we see the degradation in Sputnik as well. If, if for a while it was safe to describe them as, as uh, 
not blatantly lying, let's say, uh, maybe more discreet propaganda, more card stacking, other kinds of techniques, yeah, telling partial truth. Uh, now we we see kind of a turn there as well. And yeah, the, the narratives are similar, but the repertoires, the manner of delivery, kind of the tone differs from platform to platform. Uh, if you open the news online, that's another domain, of course, we cannot view these channels, these newspapers, these uh, agencies that I described as purely traditional media. They are not. There is convergence. They live online as well, uh, quite actively. They have accounts on major social media platforms. They penetrate through applications. They penetrate through, uh, you know, by default of people sharing with each other. They enter chat rooms and everything else. And here it's important to focus on the role of algorithms because people live in the news in the in the passive consumption of news mode. You open the phone and news kind of jumps at you out of the phone. But the algorithms select, of course, which news to prioritize. And if Russian media are continuously prioritized, then that's a huge issue. Yeah, you are constantly confirmed in your beliefs. And uh, is there uh, a difference uh, between what uh, Russians in Russia see and what Kyrgyz see of Russian media in Kyrgyzstan? Uh, also in terms of narratives, or is a lot just the same? It probably depends on, on the subject. So if we are talking about war, yeah, Russia's war against Ukraine, chances are it will be uh, similar. If we're talking about portrayal of the West as this collective, collective evil entity that is after putting Russia back on its knees, yeah, number one mission is to destroy Russia, and that's why the West needs to be contained, then it's probably going to be the same. Also, if it's the portrayal of uh, Putin's image as this unifier of the Russian lands as the guarantor of security and is the only person who can stand up again to the neo-colonizers coming out of the West, to use some of the terminology from propaganda, uh, then it will be similar. What will be different is Russia's position towards Central Asia, or in our case, towards Kyrgyzstan, because for Russian audiences, um, some of this may not be of interest, and you know it's, it, it can be tailored to domestic audiences, especially on platforms such as domestic audiences in Kyrgyzstan, especially on platforms such as Sputnik and Mir, uh, this, this channel that pitches to this so-called CIS. So there the narrative focuses more on Russia as a giving hand. Uh, some of these narratives might maybe confuse people back in Russia in a sense that why are we continuously feeding the world? Because that is the image that is delivered, that Russia is a giving hand. Russia is this mother state that brings education, very colonial, still in that Soviet mode. I mean, sometimes you open this news. The the tough part about this research was reading uh thousands and thousands of news items every day right and uh, you 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 just uh, sink in this propaganda in these narratives but some of them are, are quite you know soviet there is this repackaging of soviet narratives russia is bringing education russia is bringing uh, prosperity volunteer teachers are coming from russia to teach russian across kyrgyzstan russian is the language of enlightenment and education Russia is a giver and forgiver because they can give you credits and they can also then uh, forgive you uh, the payback. But of course, there is a price tag for that. Major, a major narrative, of course, concerns um, labor migrants. 
there are millions of Central Asian labor migrants in Russia. Precise calculations are impossible to offer. Kyrgyzstan is a country of roughly 6 million, slightly more now. But at least 1 million people work or have worked as labor migrants in Russia. Again, it's hard to say how many came back now amid the war, how many are still going. And this is a point of pressure for Russia because they can threaten to cut off uh, the opportunities for Central Asians to work in Russia and to send them back, so to speak. And they also portray themselves as, or Russia portrays itself as a giver in the sense of giving people an opportunity to work in Russia. And what's interesting also, one final point here, amid the reinvasion, I mean, the, the full-scale war against Ukraine, Central Asian labor migrants have been targeted with media discourses on the idea that it's their duty to pay back to Mother Russia by joining the armed forces. It's kind of three three layer narrative. First one focuses on this noble mission. Like you have worked here, you live here, you eat our bread, you were able to feed your family because of Russia. Now it's your noble duty to join the Russian armed forces and fight this war. They recruit members of the diaspora to act as informal leaders and to call on for compatriots to join the mobilization. The second narrative is more about the uh, opportunities that will come along. Like, hey, you can make a bit of money, quite a bit of money. They promise you some $3,000 in converted currency per month, and you can get your passport easily. So for people who labor away yeah, just to make the ends meet, who have been discriminated against, who have been waiting for documents yeah, for years and years, this promise can be attractive when you say, okay, you will be getting you know, four or five times more money per month and an easy path to a Russian passport. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you have this narrative as well. And then, of course, uh, th for domestic audiences, so the third narrative is that, hey, we're not sending people from Moscow or St. Petersburg to die, or Moscow especially. Sabanin has instrumentalized this narrative quite a bit, the mayor of Moscow. We're sending migrants and ethnic minorities, so nothing to worry about. I'm going to protect you. And that helps people in the major cities in Russia, especially in the capital of Moscow, to remain calm and to say, okay, well, the war is happening, but it doesn't affect me. It's not my problem. The war is happening, but I'm not the one to fight in it. Worst comes to worst is going to be these migrants fighting in it or ethnic minorities from across Russia, but not me. Exactly. Thanks, Rashid. Boris, uh, may I quickly turn to you? Uh, you live in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. On a daily basis, what do you notice of Russian media, uh, maybe online or in newspapers? Uh, are you confronted with it, uh, Boris? What's your personal experience? Maybe a brief note. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I kind of live in my own bubble, or like a liberal leftist bubble, so I don't face it that much because it's mainly on TV, the channel first and Vesti, etc. And uh, a bit of a on YouTube channel, like the Vladimir Solovyov's uh, vlog or stuff like that. But I confront it when I talk with uh, my relatives, with my family members or my parents even. Because they are still affected by Russian propaganda, and it, it brings uh, a lot of drama into family. I guess a lot of like uh, 
conflicts. Um, it's a cause for conflicts in many families at now, right now, especially in Bishkek, because uh, uh, parents have different perspectives, different values, and uh, consume information from different channels, ma mainly from TV. And uh, the younger generations uh, mainly uh, uh, like read uh, liberal or leftist uh, uh, media like Klopp, as mentioned by Rashid, or Azatik, that's the uh, free Europe radio branch in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, yeah, it's kind of two different worlds. Uh, Russian propaganda mainly targets regional population or elders uh, okay. because they have that uh, attachment to the past and that's okay. very strong that's utilized by russia now that's interesting yeah. what you say yeah? that it's two different worlds but these worlds meet in families on the streets and so on great thanks a lot uh, rashid uh so the message received uh so what did the study find uh, of, of uh, people that are listening to and, and reading Russian media? What did you find there? Well, the, so the two streams of research were happening simultaneously. And we came in with an inductive approach, open page, no presumptions, no hypothesis. The idea was just to collect data and see what is being said, and then also to conduct these focus groups at the same time and see how, how, how people are reacting. As we started analyzing the data, the transcripts, the, you know, started coding the screenshots of news items, we realized how much interconnection there is. So the narratives echo in focus groups. For example, the idea that the West is evil and the West is after spreading alien values across the planet and Central Asia specifically, those echoed, echoed on the ground as well. Western media are perceived as immoral. Western media are perceived as kind of a joke. Yes, some silly, weird entertainment. I mean, for some media products, of course, it's true. <laughs> but also yeah, the, the, the most tragic uh, finding is the idea that it's perceived as purely uh, Islamophobic and alien to, to Kyrgyzstan. The, with regards to war, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine and Ukrainian people is, of course, the idea that everything is a bit comp is too complicated this is mantra like uh, words that uh, russian propaganda uses if things are not uh, that simple things are quite complicated and basically people live in this gray zone they don't know which side to take because they are confused there is so much confusing information and some even believe some people express the the belief that uh, you know russia is doing the right thing by fighting Nazis in Ukraine. So these narratives echo and you know they get absorbed by audiences as truth that there are banderas in Ukraine and that you know Putin is doing the right thing and nobody is thinking that uh, they can be next. Russia is also perceived as this strategic partner for Kyrgyzstan uh, that Kyrgyzstan depends on and that is why it's best not to uh, piss Russia off that is best to rely on Russia because it keeps us safe or keeps Kyrgyzstan, keeps Central Asia safe from uh, the United States and from China. It's kind of a guarantor of security and stability. With Rashid, maybe yeah. to, to ask you about uh, the Kyrgyz people. So 
How do they see Russia then? Because earlier you said that Russia is uh, a giver, but also a taker. So it's often quite critical. Do Kyrgyz people respect Russia or are they critical towards it? How do they regard Russia? Yeah, generalizing is impossible, of course. I mean, there is no unified voice. I think it's safe to say that that there are multiple voices. And in our type of research, again, we focus more on depth and we try to, of, of course, get very diverse participants in focus groups. Um, but I would be afraid to make a blatant generalization. What is safe to say is that there is a layer of, of people who uh, oppose, obviously, Russian war, who are in this anti-colonial mentality currently, who are considering your know, decolonization, de-Sovietization of Kyrgyzstan, people who are reflecting on the identity of the nation and the future of the nation. But I wouldn't say that this is the majority of people. In fact, this is a minor, this is a, this is a very small group of people. There are probably also, well, there is maybe a much larger group of people who are kind of um, confused about what's going on in, with regards to Russia and equally large amount of people that support it uh, for one reason or another because they don't like the west for instance and again if the russian propaganda is it's brilliant if we can use this word in terms of pitching to a variety of um value systems so one of the repeated um narratives is the idea that the west is evil and satanic and is harming uh well muslims also so that echoes uh with people unfortunately so maybe we can say that yes um i cannot give you give you estimates of course to break it down by uh by how by how many what's what percentage of the nation supports russia or what doesn't but people who are more critical i would say it's it's a it's a smaller group People who are confused, which also plays off to Russia, maybe scared or maybe endorsed. That's a much larger group. And do they accept uh, Russia's view about Kyrgyzstan and how their own country is uh, portrayed? Unfortunately, well, our, our focus groups demonstrated that, yes, this parent-child relationship that Russia delivers through its uh, news items, through its media products, that Russia is a mother state and Kyrgyzstan is dependent, and there is carrot and a stick, and there is punishment and there is reward, that echoed in focus group discussions, that we have this syndrome, I, I say we continuously, it's kind of a Freudian slip, because I lived in Bishkek for five years, it's also second, third, fourth home, I'm confused now how many homes I have, but it's one of the homes of mine, and yeah, so this small country syndrome, this child syndrome, it also echoed that we are dependent, we are, we are incapable, we are scared, we are threatened, and only Russia can protect us if something happens. And though the people are not to blame for this, there are so many uh, avenues, so many uh, paths through which Russia can achieve this. Yeah, there is a military base in Kant, just 20 kilometers east of Bishkek. There is all these culture codes, like, like I've mentioned already, architecture, uh, political and security structures, like Shanghai Cooperation Organization. There is the uh, uh, the customs union. Uh, there is the um, collective security treaty organization. Yeah, so Russia is continuously demonstrating its its power through these various domains: the hard power, but also the soft cultural power, and the idea that it educates, that it gives, 
that it forgives. Okay. In, uh, in working towards a conclusion of our conversation, may I ask you, Rashid, uh, were there any things that stood out in the focus group discussions that you thought, oh, wow, or I had not expected this, or this clearly confirms something? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the, going into, with the, into the research with the inductive approach, with the blank page, helped us to not have any presumptions. And that, that, that way we walked away with quite a few... Uh, uh, revelations. First, people who are in the age group 35 plus, I mean 35 to, uh, until 60, maybe worth saying that participants range from 18 to 60 years of age. People rely on on social media for for news items, uh, TikTok, as, yeah, as well. And people open the major social media platforms and they get informed. Um, also, you know, there was not necessarily this kind of radical divide in terms of age and perception of uh, Russian media or location. I mean, to, to a slight extent. Uh, but it was another striking finding was the idea that people use TV as a fact-checking tool. So what people reported was that, okay, the number one source of information is social media, online. You open your smartphone, you get informed. But if you see something that you might question, then you turn on the TV to confirm or dispute what you have just seen. Now, if we put this into a real case scenario, let's say the Bucha massacre. So if somebody opens their online uh, information sources, and let's say some items uh, revealing Russia's atrocities penetrated their feed, they would say, all right, let me double check this information. They turn on TV and in the current realities, of media landscape in Kyrgyzstan, chances are it will be chief propagandists on Russian television screaming with foam coming out of their mouth that this was staged and that this not, never happened and that Russia uh, you know, only brings peace and joy and not massacre. And they will be reaffirmed with that, that, okay, no, this, this, uh, these atrocities never took place. It was just staged. Uh, yeah. So sadly, this is also taking place. And that's something to consider that people are using television as a fact-checking tool. Thank you, Rashid. Uh, Boris, uh, maybe as a last question. So what are the next steps in, uh, in this project? Uh, also in terms of outreach, will there be future research? Uh, do you have any views on that? Yeah, uh, well, I in the beginning, I forgot to mention about the conference we've uh, organized uh, recently. It was in Almaty, and it was aimed to set the uh, research. Uh, it was uh, the research was presented in, on the conference, and it was aimed to set the research on the context of, on the broader context of decolonization of Central Asian countries. So, I hope that um, the experts, uh, researchers, artists, and bloggers that were invited to the conference will produce uh, further products or push further for further changes in Central Asian countries. And regarding the research, uh, I think uh, there are uh, similar kinds of research uh, regarding Russian propaganda are oh, planned at least in other countries like in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan but I'm not sure when it will be and uh, yeah and uh, I think uh, it's up to 
our stakeholders and beneficiaries to for further results. And we're, I think we will promote our products that were produced by the project and hope for that they will bear fruits uh, further. Like uh, maybe uh, the, the decision makers will reach, will push for law that will uh, stop financing the Russian propaganda in Kyrgyzstan. That's the main goal of the project. And if we reach it, that's great. And the other one is uh, to, yeah, generally we, we aim to promote the products and to uh, Im improve the population's awareness of the Russian propaganda. That sounds good. Thanks a lot, Boris. And uh, you're right, uh, the, the full report and uh, the shorter policy brief will soon be available on the websites of Institute of War and Peace Reporting and also on the EUCAM website. And with that, I would like to conclude uh, this podcast. Um, thank you a lot, Boris, Rashid. Uh, well done. Very you, informative. Uh, maybe I one remark that, I, that we need to make is that I would like to thank the research team that tirelessly worked on this and made it possible, you know. Uh, being vocal about these types of topics is a, is a privilege in the sense that, you know, my residence in the Netherlands permits me to be vocal and critical. For many people, it's not reality because, uh, you know, the authors of these propaganda narratives are reacting quite aggressively to any criticism. Therefore, some of the key members of the team that conducted the uh, focus groups and uh, content analysis remained anonymous. And I think we we need to give them a virtual round of applause for the tremendous work that they have done for daily exposure to Russian propaganda. It, it, it brings on a, a, a certain toll. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to do this. And I thank them for fantastic, professional, thorough, and important and timely work. Exactly, that's right. Good, Rashid. Uh, and let's conclude with that note. Uh, dear listeners, be part by posing your questions and sharing your thoughts on our social media channels. Uh, join us next time. Stay engaged. Be well. Mm -hmm.